I welcome you back on Sunday night as we continue uh, our series that we've been going through the entire year called Unswerving. And if you've not been here before, if you're a guest, I'll take a moment to say that our theme verse and purpose really behind the series is to do one thing, and that is to increase our faith by telling the stories, the old, old stories and even some of the new stories. Our theme verse for this series has been Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, where the writer says, let us hold unswervingly. To the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. That's what it's all been about. It's not been about that these people had such great faith. It's the one in whom they had their faith. As we were singing those songs tonight, the, the verse of one of the songs says, Won't it be grand to hear him say, Well done. And even as I, every time we sing that song, I am taken immediately back 25, 26 years ago as I sat in the pew next to my great aunt, and I can hear still today her soprano voice singing those words. As we progress and mature in our faith, it, it occurs to me how much more meaningful those words, those two simple words, well done, well done, how much that will mean. Because the longer you're in this world, the more you're going to come face to face with what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, if you were here last week, you know we studied the, the topic of Job, and I told you then that the topic, the sermon, really just became as a result of my own study and became too long to fit into one lesson, and so we broke it up into two. Last week we talked and kind of did a review of the first chapter of Job. We're not going to go through this, it's not a textual study. This time we're really going to focus in on the lessons and the applications that we can draw from suffering. I don't know... The very first time you can remember suffering once you had become a Christian. And, and the suffering I'm talking about is the, the, the kind that is not a result of your own poor choices. You know, you've heard the saying, life is hard, it's harder if you're stupid kind of thing. And you, you see those things sometimes. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? I'm not talking about natural consequences here. I'm talking about suffering as a result of just living in the world, things that are a result not necessarily of your choices, perhaps of, of someone else's choices, but most likely just the, we live in a broken world, and that's very hard to do. I can tell you the story of a, of a young lady who grew up and got married and got pregnant. And the, the, the joy and the jubilation and, and all the preparations you make for this new baby. And they came to find out that the baby had a very serious health problem and lived for only hours after he was born. It was terribly sad. It was no one's fault. But it was just one of those terribly sad moments that people of faith come to every now and again. And the question is, how do you deal with it? I'm not sure what yours was. I'm guessing if you've been a Christian for a while, you've faced one of, or few of your own 
And certainly you've come across hearing other people's story of suffering. How do you react in those moments? What's your response? What's your thought process? I, I, I think we get better as we go along. I could, you know, you know some stories of a young man who was in our youth group. And he went to teen camp just fine and seemed to be struggling and came back down the mountain and figured out he had congestive heart failure. And that wasn't anyone's fault. And so we, we struggled. What do we do? How do we respond? And it turned out good in that sense. And we know the story of Josh and, and what God has done through that and in that. It's a wonderful, powerful testimony that he'll have with him. I can tell you the story of, of getting a phone call and hearing a set of parents not on the phone with me, but in the background, weeping, mourning is the better description. Unconsolable. As they had a child just tragically killed. It wasn't anyone's fault. It was a terrible thing. What do you say? How do you respond? What's your thought process? I can tell you the story about of an older gentleman, very uh, strong leader in the Lord's Church, had been an elder, had led in many ways, done lots of good in the kingdom. As he and his wife were driving, they pulled across the road, and they were struck by a drunk driver. And he was not killed, he was paralyzed, confined to a wheelchair. What do you say? What do you think? What's your thought process when confronted with suffering? It's a difficult one, and admittedly, even for people of faith, because very often for people who have no faith, it's the first thing they bring up. How could a good God let so much bad happen in the world? So, I don't think tonight's lesson is going to with. Definitely give you solid answers on all of those questions, but I only bring them up to remind you that it's important to understand where your hope lies. Because when you come into moments of suffering, it reveals it most deeply. And for those of you who have been through that, you understand exactly what I mean. For those of you who haven't, I pray you never will, but if you do, you'll see the opportunity that suffering brings. So tonight we delve into the heavy topic of suffering, and particularly looking at it from why, uh, from the, the why of Job's story. We said last week, very quickly, Job was blessed by God. He was a man of extraordinary character and integrity. He was described as blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. He was blessed with a large family and lots of possessions and wealth. And to me, the most telling thing is what God himself said in chapter 1, verse 8. There is none like him on earth. He was, secondly, bombarded by the enemy. And we just looked at chapter 1. There's more to the story, of course. But he just took away 
the physical blessings. And by such a test, he was seeking to, to prove that, yeah, God worships you. Yeah, there's none like him. But the reason is because you bless him. Uh, men and women do right only when it is profitable to them. It was his case. That God by himself was not worthy of worship based on his nature alone. Satan is not only accusing God and bombarding, uh, I'm sorry, bombarding Job, but he's bombarding God as well. He's making an accusation against him. And finally, we said, even at rock bottom, Job looked up. Now, if you've got the handout, that's side one. So you're going to be on side two tonight. Uh, Job's losses in one day, we talked about that last week, all the oxen, donkeys, sheep, camels, servants, and family. With, With all of that... As deep of a loss as it was, what was his reaction? First, obviously, the the most obvious thing is he mourned. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell to the ground. But then he worshipped. And he praised God in grief. He blessed God in suffering. And he didn't blame God in struggle. So how does he do that? Well... Um, Psalm chapter 100 and verse 21. I'm sorry, Psalm 121. The scripture uh, there helps us a little bit. As Job did, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus would later say, if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul, what has he profited? Here the psalmist says, I go, I praise the maker of everything that's in the heavens and the earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The the Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. And part of that psalm seems untrue, at least in Job's case, and maybe in your case if you face suffering. The psalmist is saying, trying to help us get a bigger perspective and and just get a little... what we. on Know Your Bible, what we constantly tell people is, if you don't understanding, what you need is a little more context. You're looking at these one or two verses, back up just a little bit. Back up and look at the next three or four. Back up and look at the chapter. Back up and look at the book. Back up so that you get more perspective of what's happening in the story. The same thing is what Psalm 121 is telling us. Even when things happen... Even when suffering comes, and it will, even when struggles arrive, and they are sure to come, what the psalmist says is back up, back up away from that so that you can look up. When you understand the the infinite nature of God, even your struggles take on a very short-lived During World War II, there was a uh, preacher. Let me back up. John Claypool was a preacher in Louisville, Kentucky, many years ago. He and his wife lost their daughter, Laura Lou, to leukemia. 
He later explained his loss and how he dealt with it by telling a story from his childhood. During World War II, his family didn't own a washing machine, and because at that time, since gas was rationed, they couldn't afford to drive to the laundromat. Keeping their clothes clean, even such a simple chore, became quite a challenge. Well, John's neighbor went, to, went into the service, and his wife moved in with her family, and they offered to let John's family use their old Bendrix Ringer washer while gone. They reasoned it would be better for it to be used than to sit on the porch and rust out. So John helped with the family's laundry, and he said he developed a fondness for that old green Bendix. When the war ended, his neighbors returned, and they reclaimed their washing machine. Over the course of the war, young John had actually forgotten that the machine was loaned to them, and he began to treat it like his own. And so when the neighbors removed it, little John was upset and angry that they would take his washing machine. His mother sat him down and looked him in his eyes and said, John, you must remember that that washing machine never belonged to us in the first place. That we ever got to use it at all was a gift of grace. And so instead of being mad at it being taken away... Let us use this as an occasion to be thankful that we ever had it at all. John would later say, <clears throat> say in later years, when he struggled with the death of his eight-year-old daughter, Laura Lou, that he really struggled to get perspective until he remembered the, le- the lesson of that old green Bendix. He wrote, When I remember that Laura Lou was a gift, pure and simple, Something I had neither earned nor deserved, nor had a right to. When I remember that the appropriate response to a gift, no matter what it is, and even when it is taken away, the appropriate response is always gratitude. Then I am better able to try and thank God that I was ever given her in the first place. And I think some of that, although (laughs) Job didn't use an old green Bendix, I think he maybe had that same perspective as well. He knew that everything good in his life had come from God and was God's to begin with and that God had the right to take them away. That's the kind of attitude that will keep you from becoming bitter in the face of loss. Admittedly, that's a difficult. I, I admire such faith for being able to do that. I'm not sure I could do the same. But it gives us perspective on every blessing that we have is not our own. So tonight I want to deal, as I said, with how should we suffer and some of the lessons that we should use. Because my belief is that all of us at some point will suffer. And indeed, James says that it's a privilege. Uh, It's an honor. It's something that we should rejoice over. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Uh, no one would, would uh, none of us, I don't believe, reasonably would ask for troubles. But the troubles produce in us the things of our faith that I believe nothing else can produce. They refine us, they mature us, they grow us, 
When you look back at old pictures of yourself, what do you think? Man, I was skinny. But if you had the ability to step back through the picture and have a conversation with yourself, what would you say? I've asked that people uh, of people uh, many times. I would say, what would you say? I'll ask a 68-year-old. What would you say to, to someone who's 38 years old? If you could go back in time, what would you say to yourself about your marriage, about your parenting, saving anything? What would you say to yourself if you could? And while I think there are some things you could say that would be helpful, I do also think that the older version of yourself, today's version, would really struggle to even explain to yourself all the things that you're going to go through. You know why? Because the younger version of yourself hasn't been through the struggles and the trials and the difficulties that matured you, that grew you, that made you into who you are today. Without those things, it's very difficult to have the wisdom that you desire. Some believe uh, it is the theme of the book. Why does God allow the righteous to suffer? And certainly that question does come up. But it is noteworthy to, to, to point out that Job himself never receives an answer to the question. Right? God never stops to explain why this is happening or the reason that it's happening. While Job's questions and complaints come close to charging God with wrong, he never crosses the line. And when confronted with God, when you read that confrontation, it sounds like there's a storm building and the lightning crashes and the wind's blowing and God says, stand back for a minute. If you're ready, I will question you. And when he goes through all the questions, where were you when, you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I hung the stars? And he's really putting them in his place. And when he gets just a few of those questions from God, he humbly submits. And he's basically told the answers to your questions are not yours to know, and they're even beyond your ability to understand. So the book shows us that uh, how the righteous should bear up under suffering. Perhaps a better question is not why does God allow the righteous to suffer, but rather how should the righteous suffer. Number one, trust in God. You and I, I was just thinking about this, we are unable to subject the painful experiences of our life to a remotely meaningful analysis. We are so limited in our ability to know and understand and perceive. Even as we try to back up, it's very hard to do that with limited knowledge. God's workings are beyond our ability to fathom. As Isaiah says, as, as God said to Isaiah, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. It, on a human level, it, it's like a, a child who cannot fathom the things his father or mother ponders. 
When you plan, just take a very simple thing like a birthday party or celebrating Christmas. As a mom and a dad, you're thinking about that on a much higher level than children are. They just enjoy Christmas and they just enjoy a birthday party. They can't even begin to perceive what has to happen for those things to take place. Now, that's a poor example, but best one I have. When you and I try to perceive the meaning behind the suffering, behind the bad things, try to figure out the whys, we're much like the children. And we have to do like children do, which is not try to figure it all out, which is difficult for those of us with control issues. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7, writes this, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. And we just have to trust that. At some level, your children have to trust you. And we, at some point, have to trust God, even Beyond, and as Proverbs 3 says, not lean on our own understanding. Number two. The second important thing in suffering is to remain faithful. Many times, as we've already said, suffering is not the result of a personal sin. Many people, including the Jews back in Jesus' day, there was a blind man that Jesus healed. And they said, okay, who messed up here? Was it the parents? Was it this man? Somebody must be responsible for this sin. And the Bible is very clear about that, that sometimes it's not the result of someone's sin. That doesn't mean sin doesn't have consequences, by the way, but just not all suffering is a result of someone's choice. Job, Job, in fact, proves this is not the case. Suffering does happen, and the reasons for it are rarely explained. And I, I personally think if, 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 if God laid out... Job, listen, here's what's happened. Um, I think you're one of the best guys I've ever known. That There's nobody like you on earth today. And your enemy is trying to tempt you and and get you to renounce me. And so uh, I just need you to trust me for a little while. If if there was a whole chapter of explanation where God set Job down and explained the whys, wouldn't it, would it even be faith? At the very most, it would cheapen faith. God allowed Job to suffer, to prove to Satan what kind of man he really was, but moreover, what kind of God he really was, what confidence God had in Job. That he was able to maintain faithfulness through one of the hardest, driest, deepest valleys he'd ever been through. These are the times when faith matters most. Hebrews 10.23 matters on an intellectual level. It's great when, you're, when things are great. But when life is hard and you don't have the answers, Hebrews 10.23 becomes meaningful. Faith is the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of what we do not see. Without it, It is impossible to please God. Number three, be patient. Psalm 27 verse 14 says, 
Wait patiently for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait upon the Lord. Oh, that, that's an easy one to say, but, but when you're in the valley, it, where, where time slows down, it's so hard. Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Paul writes, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction or tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Uh, rarely in, in suffering do we come up with a clear answer, solid answers for the why. I don't, I'm not sure that would even quench our thirst. Uh, when, we ate, when we partook of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, we, we partook of something that, to me, is an unfillable cup. And so in suffering, it becomes that much more difficult. The Greek word for patience is hupomon which describes the trait of one who is able to abide under the weight of incredible trials. And to me, that well describes Job. We learn what it means to maintain fidelity to God in all circumstances. In Christ, we long for a Savior from a heavenly home, a victory that has not yet been realized, a reunion with God's forever family. As, I, as Carl led that song tonight, and I would imagine my great aunt and my great uncle, and I, I realize that they've uh, been in heaven. My my great aunt uh, coming up on 12 years now, which of course is just a few milliseconds in heaven. But how long we wait for that great reunion, for a Savior who is from there? None of these have been realized yet, but we, like Job, patiently wait. And trust in the faithfulness of God. We have to do, to do that. We have to look beyond the seeable circumstances of our own lives. Into the hope of the unseen promise of the next. There's a song in your songbook that uh, I don't think we sang tonight. But there's a story behind it. The man's name was Luther Bridges. He was born in 1884. He married and had three sons. He accepted an invitation uh, to minister at a conference in Kentucky in the year 1910. So he left his family in the care of his father-in-law, and he made the trip. There, two wonderful weeks of ministry resulted. The last service closed with great joy, and he was excited to be, uh, to be called to the telephone. He couldn't wait to tell his wife about all the blessings but it wasn't her voice on that long-distance line. He listened in silence to the news that a fire had burned down the house of his father-in-law and his wife, and all three sons had perished in the fire. The distraught man reached out to Jesus and wrote the words we famously sing. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing. Keeps me singing as I go. When I sing that song, I never sung it understanding that story. But greatest faith, some of the most beautiful hymns, some of the greatest, most inspiring words of Scripture are written by men and women in their suffering, in their valleys. All right, what can we take away from his life, and apply to ours.
Number one, God will be praised. The book defends the absolute glory and perfection of God. It reminds us of Psalm chapter 18, verse 3, which says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Job calls out to him when he's blessed. He calls out to him when he's bombarded. He calls out to him when he's surrounded by a group of his very foolish friends. Job calls out to the Lord and he praises him. Number two, God's people may suffer. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 uh, says simply this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout all the world. Just because you suffer doesn't mean you've done something wrong, but it does give you an opportunity to have a perspective of a spiritual battle happening. If Job had had that perspective, think of how it would have changed the conversations he later had with his friends. Number three, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the good. He's over the sovereign over the bad and even the ugly. We can take comfort in this fact alone. He is the alpha He is the Omega. This too shall pass. And when it does pass, God will still be God. And he'll still be in charge, regardless of what what happens in your life. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. God is in charge. God is sovereign regardless of your circumstances. And that may seem little comfort to you, but that is your only comfort in times of suffering. And that leads to number four. We are not. There are matters going on in heaven with God that we know nothing about. And God owes us no explanation or defense. And I know sometimes we like to think about all the questions we get to ask up in heaven. But if God's really God, then it's fully within his will to say, no questions. And we should be okay with that. He will be the fulfillment. He will be the answer to every question. He will be the completion of... To every struggle. Number five. Suffering presents opportunity. Suffering can both refine our strength, our faith rather, and strengthen it. The believer in the midst of suffering should not abandon God. For it's it's with him and only with him that you you grow and you increase the, the moments of Your faith become as strong as they ever will. Think. If you want to become physically stronger, 
you go to the gym like I do. And you lift. And you lift. You know? And yeah, I know you guys know. You're like, man, Toby's huge. His guns, he's about to bust out of his suit. The reason that... Well, why is there so much laughter? As you, as you imagine my muscles flexing, the only way my muscles grow is to put them under the weight. That's where they grow. That's where they strengthen. It doesn't come, it doesn't come regretfully by sitting at Chick-fil-A and having a wonderful meal. It comes from the difficulty. It comes from the trial. These are the same things with your sufferings and your struggles. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. How could my great aunt sing that song, knowing what she had been through in her life, because she'd been trained by it? And every time she felt the weight... Her faith muscles grew. And as her faith muscles grew, she could sit in a pew with much peace and peace of mind and peace of soul, knowing who was in charge. God may permit suffering in your life to refine, even if you have beautiful faith already. Your faith is like gold, but there's just a little bit of straw in it. And God loves you so much that he is, he's now going to burn out just a little more straw. He's going to refine your gold just a little more. Any suffering Christian who's either suffering now or has suffered in the past will tell you that they have seen more of God and have come to know him more deeply through suffering than at any other time in their life. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Which leads us to point number six. Better things lie ahead. The stings that we suffer today pale in comparison to the victory we will sing tomorrow. That is why we can praise him in both sunshine and storm. When the wind and the rains come, it ain't over until it's over. And if you're suffering right now, I can tell you assuredly, you will get through this. And if God can lead you to it, he can certainly lead you through it. If you are in Christ, victory is yours. You just need to hold on. Now... I put this little epilogue at the end of my sermon because I thought this would, be, this would be good to know, to think about and to consider. Job tells us at the very end of the story, in Job chapter 42, these words. And I hope that if you're following along, you'll underline them because it's worth remembering. All his brothers and sisters... I'm sorry, verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had 
known him before, came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he goes on to name, Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years. You think you won't get through this? You will. And my guess is, even if you don't come out physically as blessed as Job was, you certainly will come out ahead spiritually. A little chart, not sure if you can see it, but it shows you how much Job prospered through the suffering. But it wasn't just the increase of his family and the sheep and the camels and the oxen and the donkeys. It was what he learned. It blessed him. It's how he grew in his relationship with God that he was blessed. Jesus promises us that better things lie ahead if you maintain your faith in him. And that may not mean a physical blessing, though it could be. But more likely it means the greater spiritual blessing. As Paul said, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. But just now imagine... Just a moment after you've stepped into eternity. And you step in and you look into the face of your Savior. And he says to you these two simple words. Well done. In that moment, all that you had in this world, every dollar, every piece of property, every asset of wealth and possession will fade into the ash heap of eternity. And so too in that moment will every trial, every struggle, every temptation, every question with just two words. Everything, blessing or struggle, fade into obscurity. That's going to be a beautiful day. And that day can be yours today if you are in Christ. If you've been immersed into Christ... And you're on that journey, but maybe you're struggling, you're suffering, you're going through some of the difficulties that Job faced. We can help you with that. I want to remind you that next week we have the area-wide worship, so we will not have services here. We'll be over at the Riverwalk Church of Christ uh, there on Waco Street. It will be at 6 o'clock, and they have a guest speaker and and plan for that. I, I really want to encourage you to come and fellowship and worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe it will be a good evening. Tonight, if you have any need, whether you need some encouragement along your journey or you need to begin your journey, whatever your need is, please come as together we stand and sing.